Welcome to 90 Minutes with Neville Southall. I'm James Rogers. I'm here with the big man himself, Neville Southall, and the fellow members of our podcast team, Keith Mullen and Mr. David Feely. We've got a special guest. We're welcoming back today. He came with us, came to us for an episode before Christmas. He enjoyed it that much. He wanted to come and chat some more. Welcome back, Jamie Carragher. Thanks, James, Keith, Dave, and uh, the big man himself, Neville. Thanks for having me back. Thanks, Jamie. J- Jamie, you know what? You've had a, a couple of weeks now to think about the World Cup and how, how it went. How do you think England actually did? I actually think the five games England played, when I'd watched every team who got to the quarterfinals, obviously all played five games. I actually think England were the best team in terms of how they all performed. They didn't lose a game. I think a couple of... I think, uh, obviously, Argentina lost the first game. France lost the game and they rested players. I get that. England were uh, as impressive as anyone in the tournament. And so you can look at that both ways. People can be very, you know, complimentary once England England played. They had a good World Cup. I think it's a massive opportunity lost. I really do. I think to play the French team with four or five players out and be playing as well as as England were and not win, I think... uh, England are at a stage now where they're good enough to match the top nations, so it shouldn't be seen as as it has always been in the past, as you know, a gallant failure. You know, give them a good rousing reception when they get back. I think we're past that stage now. I think the England squad that we've got and how well we've done in the last few tournaments. I think if this was another major nation who's actually had success in the past, let's say this was a France or you know, an Argentina or Brazil who were used to winning things, I think they'd look at this opportunity and say it was an opportunity missed and be a lot more critical. Not that I'm looking for some pylon, but I think we should be asking a lot more stronger and stringent questions of the team and the manager because they're good enough to win a trophy now. I think, well, I thought they should have won it, to be fair, but where do they get their belief from now? Because obviously they've come close a lot of times. But where's, where's the belief? How does Gareth Southgate get some more belief into them players? Because, you know, they performed well, but there's obviously something missing in there. Whether it'll be a, something in midfield, creativity, or, or just being less cautious. Yeah, I mean, the, the cautious one gets thrown at the manager. And, and I can understand that. I think that's been a, a case at times. But I don't actually just think it, it's caution. I actually think it's making changes on the bench now. We always associate changes from the bench to maybe go and try and win a game. But sometimes it's actually to kill a game. And England have been in positions where they've actually been in front in the two uh, times before against Croatia in a semi-final where I thought the manager was slow to react to stop Croatia. It wasn't necessarily about being on the front foot because as a manager, as I said, it's not just about going to try and win the game. I felt in the Italy game, Again, the changes were late, almost reacting to them, the opposition score before you then do something. You know, it, it reminds me of a cricket where, you know, the opposition batsman puts its one and there's no one stood there waiting for the catch. And then as soon as he's done it, the, the captain goes, go to stand there. It's like, it's, it's too late now. And I just think in the game against France, when that game went to 1-1, the game was there for the taking. It really was. And I just don't think we were brave enough from the bench. It was almost, let's see what happens. Let's hold what we've got. And I just, that is the one criticism I have from the manager. He hasn't really changed the game when it's been there to be changed. Yeah, I think you're right, to be fair. 
Um, and obviously now the new season, well, the, the next part of the new season started. What, what do you think about the transfer phase and the agent's money? Because it seems to me that we're going to reach a stage where <coughs> we're going to get to 150 million, 200 million player in a few years, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, I, I spoke to uh, the guy who's actually left Liverpool about 12 months ago, Michael Edwards. I spoke to him two or three years ago. And uh, you're probably not going to like to uh, hear this, Nev, but he said the most... Because Liverpool have been sort of famed for the last sort of four or five years as being great in the transfer market, being being ahead of the curve, if you like, getting players, going under the radar in terms of press speculation. He said the biggest thing for them was the relationship with agents. Mm. So I, I, whether that's, you know, speaking to them financially, I'm sure that plays a big part of it as well. I mean, I think that's, that's common knowledge. I think that comes out, I think, in teams' uh, accounts, how much they pay agents. But it was just startling, really, and probably understandably so, because I think players now, the worry is, I think completely different from mine in your day, Nev, was that I sp- also spoke to Alex Inglethorpe, who was head of the academy at Liverpool, and players at that age now are getting agents. And he said the agent isn't just the agent anymore. He's, he, he plays the role of everybody, four or five people. So he's, all, he's the father figure. He's, he's the agent, that's his job. He's the sound on board. He's the best friend in some instances where, you know, a player's moving around the world. He loses contact a little bit with family and friends. And the agent fulfills every role that we used to have as players where you, you go with your friends. I, the first person I always spoke to after the game was my dad. I never really speak even now to my agent that much. I have a good relationship, but I do think with a lot of players, the agent is like, he covers so many roles. So the advice from the agent to the player about where he needs to go, I think is paramount. And I got it from the Gospels Mount, if you like, from Liverpool, who were mm. ever seen as great in the transfer market. And that was the biggest thing he said to me. Yeah, it's, I think it's a nightmare because if you get the wrong agent, then you can see that he does as well. I know they're supposed to be licensed, but they're only licensing in as much as they're basically lawyers, aren't they? You know, the other skills, I'm not sure whether they've all got the other skills. And, and who did it? Is it their product they sell or is it, is it the whole person? Are they doing the best for the individual? Or are they doing the best for themselves in... in as well as the individual, do you know what I mean? Well, I think it's both. I, th- I don't think a, an agent would, I don't think he'd gain too much for not doing the, trying to do the best in the place and such. I mean, that'd be evident eventually. Uh, and that'd probably be a short-term fix for an agent. But there's no doubt they want to do both. You know, you, you see some of the funds uh, getting past a certain ages, but I just find it unbelievable. And you see, like, Pogba going to Man United and it's saying, like, the transfer fee was like 100 million or something, but the club's only exchanged 60 and the agent got 40. And you're like, that is just unbelievable, you know, those type of figures. I understand there's footballers are washed with money, agents play a big part in it, clubs use them to get players, and yet there are going to be lots of money. But when you're talking about money like that, that is just, that, that for me is off the scale when it's basically making phone calls for maybe three or four months and putting yeah. things that you're talking about that type of money. So what what do you what do you think about Ronaldo's agent? Because obviously the way he left Man United, it looked like he was trying to force his way out. But at the same time, it, it wasn't politically very good to what he did, was it? 
No, I, I think he's come out of it really badly, uh, Ronaldo. <laughs> I think even from Man United fans' point of view. But his agent is an interesting one. He's probably seen as the biggest agent or most famous agent we've seen now in the last five or ten years. It feels like he's actually running football a lot of the time. And it's not just Ronaldo. I mean, yeah. everyone knows it's not daft. He's, he's running Wolves. Yeah. You know, his clients always get the manager's job. And that's on the proviso that he'll then bring his players into the Premier League, put them in the shop window. And maybe they get a move from Wolves then, higher up the chain in the Premier League. I mean, that just shows the power of agents, especially, especially George Mendes. Yeah, I, I think it's... They need to do something with the agents. I mean, they're always going to have them. And they're not going to be super, super agents. But, you know, I still think we're going to get close to 200 million for the player, don't you? Oh, we'll get there. We'll get there eventually. Yeah, 100%. I mean, there we go back to the Trevor Francis, won the million. I mean, we've, we've had the 100. We will get there. I mean, there's, the figures we're talking about for Jude Bellingham now, whoever's going to get their hands on him, you're probably talking 120, 130. I mean, I mean, what, what was Mbappe? Was Mbappe over 200 when he went to PSG? He wasn't far off. He may have even been round about that mark. So I think if Mbappe makes a move to Real Madrid or Haaland leaves City to Real Madrid in the next three or four years, I think you'd be getting close to that 150, 200 million. Yeah. Can I just say on that aging thing, if, if you don't mind, just for a second, the, the, the worry, going back to that Wolves example, and not just Mendes, Pini we've seen this model before. What this will lead you to is a European Super League of agents, which what that does then to the pyramid structure of football, or traditionally British football, certainly, is in a pyramid structure. But what you're doing then is the, the problem with this exclusivity all the time about you can only wear five brands out of the 95 brands what are available, you're only having interest in five or six of them at the top. Well, that then... If you take, if you run that concept forward, what you're going to do is farm players, and players are going to go to agents where they're not really their skill set doesn't really match this agent's portfolio of clubs and connections. But he's going to take you because of the cut on it, but also to big up his brand by the numbers and his followers and all that, but also your brand. By going into Liverpool's third team, for example, for putting on your instinct that you play for Liverpool, that's the worry about it because teams like Bournemouth, I'm picking them off the top of my head, and my own club, Everton, have wasted money consistently by going on the say-so of an agent and the clientele and the book, what the potential future signings, he can show you if you take this one, I'll do you the favour with that one nine months down the line. That is terrifying in football today because all you're doing, the problem with exclusivity is that it's exclusive. So it, 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 it's raison d'etre. The whole reason it's there is to keep people out of it. It's not to include people. It's to keep people out. And that's the whole academy structure. Of yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think when you're talking about your own club there, Evan, I think, I think a lot of clubs now, over the last 10 years, and this has been really successful for Liverpool, even though I'm saying they have to have a, a, a relationship with the agents. But Everton almost feels like they're doing what club, the club everyone was doing 20 years ago, where an agent would just give you a ring, this player's available. There's no, I don't, it might have changed now with the new guy who's coming. He used to be at Wolves, I think. Uh, is it Kevin yeah. Felwell? Uh, I love that. 
And it just feels to me that your club, the owner that you've got, someone just phones them up and they go and buy a player or they change a manager, they bring someone else in. It just feels like a really old-fashioned way of doing things. And I think a lot of teams have moved away from that and gone down that sort of European model like we saw years ago in terms of a yeah. sport and director. I know you've had Marcel Brands and other people, yeah. but it never feels like those type of people at your club have ever had the actual power yeah. to do things because there's different people in people's ears and they know there's a lot of money there to wash and a lot of money just gets wasted. But also your point about these agents and uh, the portfolios of the players. I mean, the, the, the thing that strikes me and it may, I think it will grow, and I agree with you, Dave, and that you talk about the Ronaldo situation before. Him and Messi and probably Mbappe and Haaland right now, they're almost bigger than their own clubs. Yeah. You know, there's studies being done on it. There's fans now who are fans of players, not clubs. So wherever Ronaldo goes, they go. Same yeah. with Messi and the best players in the world. And <clears throat> even, you know, social media, you know, we're all on social media. They're bigger than their own clubs on social media. The power of them, of players. And I don't think that's healthy. How you stop it, I don't know. But I think that's all part of what you're talking about in terms of the agents as well. I also think that the chairman, whoever comes in and buys a club, should have a, should have an ex-player alongside him as an advisor. Some, somebody who knows football rather than somebody coming in with loads of money. And to be fair, everybody that buys a football club is usually a good businessman. But when it comes to football, he seems to lose their head and throw it all down a down a drain. So I think they need to have somebody who's got some common sense around football, and that should be part of the structure. So, so and I and I also think they can then use go with the manager. You know, when when you hear managers come out and they come out after the game and go, oh yeah, yeah, we did really well. And, and really, what the crowd are saying is, well, basically we were shit today. But they try and dress it up. And I'm thinking, well, if they understand, you know what I mean? Who could say, look. You know, because they get interviewed straight after, I don't think they should get interviewed straight after. I think they shouldn't get interviewed till seven o'clock at night after the mm-hmm. after the kickoff, and then they'd be able to sit down. Well, what are we going to do in that Sky Studio? We've got we've got to get home to the wife, and we've got to sit. We've got to be on the table, <laughs> <laughs> you, you you three or four will argue anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, all in football now, right? And all the money that's been there, but you've got your foundation, haven't you? So, so why do you want to give back? Uh, I mean, why? I mean, to be honest, Nev, you, you know, even though you're not from the city, I think you, you'll know the city as well as me. I don't think, whether you're red or blue, that's got nothing to do with it. I think as, as a city, we don't like big heads. We don't like people who, you know, get above themselves or forget where they've come from, if you like. And I, I was after you where, you know, the revenue was on a completely different level to, you know, the players in the 80s. And, I remember testimonials, uh, you know, you'd have had one yourself. And I think it was only right that players who, who hadn't moved in the career, and we always know a way of making money as a footballer was make, getting moves. We're rewarded in some ways, you know, with, with you know, a full house and, and take the revenue. But I think when it comes to sort of, of my day of getting a testimonial, I think that the funds that we'd earned, that was, that was, never, in, that was uh, never in question in terms of me taking it. And not just me, by the way. I think every player now would would not take the uh, the funds from a, a testimonial game. So setting up foundation, a charity, it can uh, you know last forever. We still put bits to really cheer in terms of me signing memorabilia, and it's just a nice way for me and my family to uh, to help people in Liverpool. And I totally get people who, who help people abroad. Some players set up things in 
in Africa where, you know, kids have got nothing. But for me, I was very passionate about the city, you know, being from here. And, uh, yeah, wanted to, uh, you know, do what we can. And, and we do that twice a year. We give about 30 or 40 grand away a couple of times a year. And uh, it, it stays within Merseyside. What sort of projects? Mainly young people. And we had ideas at the start of what we were going to do. But to be honest, it, it, it just depends what the need is within the city. So right now, we'll be giving a lot of money to food banks yeah. uh, because of the situation you find yourselves in. Uh, but predominantly trying to help young people, trying to get into sport. That was the original idea. But, you know, we, we helped individuals maybe get tennis lessons or get a great coach to try and get them on the England tour or a young boxer who needs one-on-one -on -one coach, you know, things like that to basically try and think of, you know, the help I got, could we help someone to sort of get into sport and maybe have a career? I did in a different sport, but once it comes to it and it's charity and you, you're trying to keep youth centres open, things like that, keep kids off the street, keep kids out of trouble. And uh, as I said, right now, homeless and the uh, the food bank situation. I know, I think, I think Dave wants to come in, don't you, Dave, and talk about that? No, I did, actually, because... The, the two preceding or two of the preceding guests on this podcast, all of us here, just for context to anybody listening or watching, we're all football people. And we all, five of us here, we all know each other via being football people. But two of the other guests we've had on previously on this podcast, who are also both football people, by the way, Andy Burnham, the GM, uh, the Manchester uh, Mayor, and Dave Kelly from the Food Bank, who was the actual, the last podcast before you, Jamie. And I know these two personally just because both of them happen to be Evertonians. But Dave in particular, Dave Kelly in particular, I go on the same coaches two away games with him. And I know that this coach gets there. For, for example, we played Newcastle just in that crazy concertina of games before we spewed it. When we played them midweek. And it's freezing and battened down. And we're coming up to that time bridge, then the bridge is where you go over there to the ground. And I said, he said, what have you got to do? I said, I've got a couple of tickets, a couple of lads are meeting me. I said, what have you got to do? He said, oh, the Newcastle Food Bank, I've put a thing on tonight. So all that thing where he goes between Goodison on the home game and then Anfield on the away game, he does it on the, when Everton's away and, and Ian Byrne goes to Liverpool on the home game. He's doing it on the away games. So when he said about your, your um, foundation, the thing what stuck out to me was the fact that you actually recognised that it didn't matter about the amount of money. It's that where you live, this is not being ex in parochial in the attitude. We have literally got more problems than enough right on our doorstep here. And we can't solve anybody else's world until we solve our own or at least look to be looking to, to, to address our own problems. And that's the bit what jumped out to me. So when you came on here as a guest and, and we're these Evertonians and you're this little Budlian thing, although you have got a, 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 a knowledge and an awareness of Everton, I'm not trying to go there with it because like you said at the start, this is non-sectarian, it's not parochial. This problem exists in all of our worlds. So that's got to go to the side. And like Dave Kelly did with Ian Byrne and reach across and say, together we're stronger on these issues. We'll always have our distances and we'll always be 
opponents in the world of football. But when it comes to big ass social stuff, we need to start getting some clever people around the table. And like you spoke about last time about the mental health, potential mental health project, Neville said to you about getting Gary Neville yeah. and doing the unified takeover. It that's it's now time because we it, we've got we are gifted with people. That's one thing we have got here, particularly not just in Liverpool, but in the northwest, in the north of England, particularly, we've got characters who will speak out and, and that that you've got a platform and, and are willing to do it, actually. That's the other thing you've got to have the intent. But I really do think that aspect of your foundation, which I've had nothing to do with, to be fair, but I, I respect that Jesus out of because that as a, as someone who's attained something which would have been out of the reach of your parents and your grandparents, you still find yourself lucky, but you didn't find yourself entitled. You looked around and said, who else can he help? That's the bit what I need to highlight on this podcast because that's what we do here is social issues and it's it's laudable. So I wanted to say it. Yeah, yeah but I think I think the fans support food banks. Yeah, we've I actually did something with them uh, about a month ago with John Bishop. I think it's coming out on the Merseyside Derby on LFC TV or Everton TV, uh, and we finished at Anfield and seeing all, all, all the lads you mentioned and that. But you know, we we talk about our platform and. Social media, as we know, can be in a, a pretty dodgy place at times. Yeah. Uh, but I think there are times <clears throat> when it, it does bring a real togetherness. And I think this initiative, Fan Support and Food Banks, does bring a connection between supporters all over the country, especially in our city, that we know it's tribal. We love our clubs. We have rivalries, and that's fine. But I do think this, this connection and what's been started in our city is something that we should be really proud of. And... Uh, yeah, it feels like a lot more teams are getting involved and building those connections. Don't you? Know, I think um, I think it's a you know that that fans for support and feel well feel bad things, but is it is is a great example of like the the, the football fans being actually getting together and going beyond those tribal like them them, them tribal things that you mentioned in Jamie and, and and Dave. I mean, I think what Dave Kelly's done and what Ian Byrne's done is, is actually fantastic because it's not only just Liverpool and Everton fans now, it's been taken on right across the country. Yeah, yeah. And, and and it kind of demonstrates that, you know, um, in, in terms of it, it's, it's almost like an opposition to what football's become. You know, football has become this multi-conglomerate, you know, with billions and billions and billions of pounds invested in it, and yet you've got football fans standing outside the grounds, you know, collecting food to feed their feed their communities. You know, it's it's a... It's a real weird dichotomy for me when you kind of you go and um, when you go into the football, you know, into into a ground where everyone's, you know, which is worth millions and everyone's being paid, you know, God knows what, and then you're turning up with a bag of food for people in, in the local community. But I, I I find that I do find that like you know a, a odd, but I, but I also think it's fantastic of, of football fans. And it's a great example of what football fans can do, and it's a great example of what you know Everton fans and the SOS who are. You know, or, 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 you know, especially Shankly lads who are, who are, you know, being kind of quite prominent behind behind that and, and making it work. You know, I was only talking to them. I know the SOS as well are doing more work in the in the community in relationship to performing arts and relationship to uh, guitar classes. They've been doing that in the Anfield area because Peter come to me uh, the other week and said, you know, do you know anyone who can, you know, do some more, more performing arts based things? So. 
I introduced him to someone who does the community drama course at Red Lipper and said, look, this guy's a genius, you know, and it's perfect. You know, these students are perfect for what you're looking for, you know. So I know there's more work like that going on in it. It is very community gay. And I think what you do with your with your foundation thing is is, is you know it's fantastic work. It's that it's that, that working class ethic, isn't it? You're looking after your own as well and giving someone else the, the, the opportunity that you had, you know. So it's it, it, it's a fantastic thing from, from my perspective, you know. Oh, cheers, boys. Thank you. Don't you think though that the two clubs should put a million pounds in each and then go, you know, even even now. Because people are going to make a choice between sending their kids to football or sport or eating or putting a heating on. Would it be nice if Everton or Liverpool or both actually put some money in to make all the facilities <coughs> free? Because the facility is going to be the one that drives all of these. And I, and I think if you could rent the places out for free, you know, through the two clubs, I think the goodwill would be fantastic. And also, I do believe that in this day and age, club. The club should give one free game to the punters around Christmas. I do, well, you know, maybe the, the two weeks before Christmas, give them that one day where it's free as, as a reward. And especially a city like Liverpool, where, where you can do it and the goodwill you would get would be unbelievable, I think. Yeah, you know, I think, I, I, you know, I agree with you, Nevin, that, but I, what I would say also in, the, in, uh, in relation to both clubs, I think, especially Everton, what they do in the communities, and I know Liverpool's the same, but you know, I hear a lot more of sort of Everton, and it's, I think it's something that obviously the club's really proud of the, the, the role they play in the community, Liverpool themselves. And I think there is a lot of great work done there, but as you said, a, a million pounds in this day and age, certainly for a Premier League football club, is not. And imagine you know, Liverpool and Everton came together, whether that went to the homeless, grassroots football, whatever it may be, you know, doing something, you know, making a stand, being difference you know you, you talk about us starting you know this city starting uh, fan support and food banks what a great gesture that'd be maybe from the both football clubs to do something to help yeah. people with the times that they have yeah I, I think it's been difficult I mean, I, I mean Everton do loads of the community I know I know that but the things that because they're all projects there's, there's no project out there that supplies something that gives you the choice of sending your kids to football or putting your heating on is it mm. so me, the facilities, I mean, I've spoken to the Welsh FA about it a little bit as well, about paying for facilities so that, so that people don't have to pay for the facilities because that's going to, you're going to have less and less people playing sport throughout the next six months, I think. And when, especially with the cold weather and that, it's going to bite into people. They're going to have to put the heating on, they're going to have to feed the kids, they're going to go short. And if you've got three kids and you, you, you know, your subs might be three quid ahead, two quid ahead, where are you going to get that from? Mm. So I now is a real good time to to invest in in facilities as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, I work in education, as you all know, as well. Now, and I kind of very very aware of. I work in higher education, but I'm very very aware of what's going on in, in schools uh, because I, I I know teachers because I'm a union official, you know, and I'm a union rep and, and stuff like that. So, but I'm kind of very very aware of, of the cuts that are about that have been made and are about to come and what isn't going on in in our schools. So I think that's a suggestion. That'd be a great suggestion, you know what I mean? In terms of, you know, because it, it's, it's, it, I think it's a terrible indictment of where we are as a society that it's kind of being left to, to football clubs and left to Marcus Rashford, if you like, and you know, people like that to kind of come in and fill the, the void that the government has left because they're just not, it's it, ideologically, it, it, it's a, it's not something that they see that there's their, their responsibility, but it is. But it's definitely, it, there's definitely a need, you know. 
You've got to say and something, I just say, it's a, it would be the greatest PR coup of the, of the last 20 years, of the 21st century. If they, if what Jamie just said then, it's a drop in the bucket to them financially, if nothing at all, you can write it off on tax because it literally is a charitable donation. So it will cost you nothing in the end of the day. But as a statement, as these clubs together recognising that's a statement, that's a PRQ you literally couldn't buy, honestly, as, as regards goodwill around the world to say, listen, we're going to put our differences aside and say both of our clubs, look how far away, even when we go down here, it's still two miles away. It's still going to be two and a quarter miles away is how far it's going to be. That's how far we're ever going to be apart. So for them, for them to get there, that's big thinking. That would appeal to future owners, to future fans, future future online purchases of your merchandise. <clears throat> that is a no-lose situation should those clubs nominal fee like a million pounds each and state it out loud that we've got that many problems we don't know what to do with. We're going to start with this one. It leaves the door open for any future collaboration. It does, it's literally a no-lose situation for them to... Yeah, I think. Do you get pestered a lot, Jamie, to sort of put your name to a lot of stuff? Yeah, I wouldn't say pestered, but I mean, yeah, you get asked to put your name to things. Now, to be honest, I've got no problem putting my name to it. It's, it's how much I then have to do for that. And that's not saying I don't want to do stuff, but when you've got your own charity, that's sort of your own focus. And then, I mean, what we do basically, even though we're a charity, we give to other charities basically because of we can bring more revenue in or more funds in because of the name and the profile of, of the charity. I, I sign shared. So we bring, you know, a few thousand pounds in a month as well. That goes into the pot that we've already got. So yeah, you get pulled to do different things, but that's, that's the nature of being a professional footballer, being in the public eye. And, oh, you know, you've got to use that, you know, platform profile to do as much as you can, I think. Do you get asked to do, Sort of support the postmen, the nurses, and stuff like that. Yeah, but I think that's something that we all, we probably all get out, well, not asked to do. I think we all should do, really. Uh, I was in Alderay just before Christmas, so I go there every year. I used to go every year with obviously the football club, and then since I stopped, I go in there on my own with the family, with the almost like the Twenty Three Foundation, which is the name of the charity, and then we see the you know the kids, and, the, and obviously you see the nurses going around there, so. Yeah, I'm well aware of the job that's getting done. Certainly in my city, of course, that's across the board. And what, obviously, nurses, doctors, everyone in the NHS had to go through with, with COVID. Just, well, how you see it now, they're not, they're not getting paid. I mean, eventually they'll pay. They just will. It's just, what's the hold up? Just do it, because you're going to do it in the end anyway. You know, the public will, everyone is, you know, for this, because we all remember, not just in COVID, because we've all... Being, you know, we've needed the NHS ourselves as youngsters, our family have, whatever it may be. So, yeah, get on with it and do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have you got, got ties with Alder Hay? Were you born there? Yeah, I was. I was. Yeah, I, I, I was. I was in Alder for the first six weeks of my life. Yeah. So yeah. I was. Yeah, I was born in, in Alder I think I was in Bazakli and then I was rushed to Alder So, yeah, I was. Uh, I was in football. That was 1978, 28th of January. And my dad informs me that uh, 
Everton got beat in the FA Cup. I think it was away. At Sunderland, I went. I, think at it was... Sunderland, I yeah. went. Sunderland. I was in school and I went. Will have Preston. You... Yeah. Have you Jamie? He's a fucking jinx. <laughs> I have a jinx. <laughs> Wherever he goes, he fucking lose. Okay. I'm trying to get him to support you. What's chance of that now? What about him? Now, what about referees? I know you've got something you want to discuss. Yeah. I know Dave, me and Dave have got stuff we want to discuss about referees today after <gasps> the stuff. What do you think seen? about former players becoming refs? Because I, I think you play as long as you can. And if you do become a referee, by the time you work up yourself to a decent level, you know, four or five years, you're going to fucking retire anyways. So, you know, yeah. how are you going to get a decent players to become referees? There's got to be a different way, aren't there? Yeah, I mean, Howard Webb mentioned that, I think, the other day, because he's coming in now as the head of the referees and about fast-tracking players. And that's the only way you're going to do it. Because, no, I don't think you're going to get a top professional. Is, is, exactly. You know, the funds, the, the money that they earn. But in terms of talking about maybe lads in League One or League Two, can't go through the coaching ladder, maybe can't go and get a TV role and want to stay in the game. Getting them to be sort of referees, and if you could fast-track them. And that's not talking about cheating the system, but almost encourage players to get involved because the respect they get on the pitch straight away through being a player from former players, I think, would would elevate them and make the game maybe better as well. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's something we've always said, but I'm an ex-player. I wouldn't want to be a referee. And, you know, certainly the abuse I used to give them. But, oh, yeah. uh, but no, I mean, I am very mindful in the role that I'm in now. Because I've got no real emotional tie to most of the games that I watch, I'm very rarely critical of a referee and I try as much as I can to stay away from that because I, I always remember something uh, Graham Paul said in an interview and it really struck me. He said, uh, he said, Roman Abramovich has just bought Chelsea. He said, and if he wanted to, he could play for them. He could play number nine. He could put the kit on. He said, but he couldn't referee if he wanted to, because he, so, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, you've got to sort of go through a certain procedure, sort of about money or whatever, and a rich owner could do what he wants at his own football club. He could play himself, as I said, but he couldn't referee. And where would you be without a referee? You know, we just take it for granted. You know, there's always going to be a referee there to referee games. So I, I am very much, and this is more at amateur level, you know, where you see the treatment of referees, I, I, I see Saturday in some league games. And, you know, I, I think that the penalties for the treatment of the referees should be very, very harsh. I mean, very strict. And really send a message to, you know, the, the whole football and amateur football because, you know, the referee in there for what are they getting? Paid 25, 30 quid to yeah. referee a game, you know. I think at the top level now, it's a lot more stricter in terms of a, if a manager now in an interview says something about a referee, they come down hard. And I think I think Klopp was banned for a game. Uh, people may argue it should have been more uh, a few weeks ago. So we, I, I think it's very important that we are very tough amateur level and at the professional game on, on how people treat referees. I, I but think that, that's be... me to say now that I've retired. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'd need to... You need to change. What I'd like to see is maybe change some of the leagues, not not the professional leagues, but the amateur leagues, to summer, so that so that you could actually go out and have a go at it. Do you know? So you wouldn't interfere with your career. 
so you could actually go and have a go at that. And to be fair, I'm really glad you said you don't have an emotional tie to most of the games. We know which ones you do. <laughs> <laughs> Liverpool, Adam. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> I would say that if there was going to be, we don't know how long this bubble of money, if you, if, before we all assume it's going to last like the NFL, think back to Italy in the 80s when every boss footballer in the world, even the Spanish ones, went to play in Italy. That is not the case anymore. So this might be a passing fancy. So what I'd say to you is, while this big slush pool of money, the, acad the academy system has literally been adopted across football everywhere except the officials who are the most important people. Like you just stressed there, the game doesn't go on without them. And it's been haphazard. And then we get to a level where you're on telly, and I'm not just picking you just because you're the only one who that goes on telly and does it, and says, this is the greatest league in the world. Well, actually, it's nearly the greatest league in the world because what you've done is you give all this money to all these doctors and assistant coaches and video assistant editors and all of these people who are all crucial to the system, by the way. I'm not denigrating any of them. They're not as important as the officials. And the problem you've got in the Premier League, certainly, I would, before I give you that point, you're absolutely right about amateur football. Any dissent at amateur level, at youth level, should be an immediate ending of the game. And you'll do that four or five times through the season. And the other teams will get onto them and solve it. And the league will solve itself. But the actual top level, it's the inconsistency. When you think that people's livelihoods, their lives as fans, but the club, its manager, the players, everybody's hanging on it. If you went into court, for example, and one day the crime this person had committed got him three years, and the next Monday he got 18 months, and then the Monday after that he got seven years, in a while you're coming out going, what does this crime actually, what's, what's the, 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 the penalty for this game? Because there's no consistency. You see the same tackle go in four times in a month. There's four different outcomes from it. <clears throat> that tells you more about that the referees haven't got an average, a mean average of things in their head. So, so for example, three bookings in the first 10 minutes. You're looking at two seven offs. So now the subs are getting geared to do that. If you just remove that element of chance, and through a couple of million over, like you said, it's going to take 15 years, but it's like an academy system to set it up, get it rolling, use the best ones first, even women, that's, throw that in, 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 into the equation as well. You've got to open your mind up to that, this whole thing. If you want if, 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 an equality in both the performance levels of the fitness and the ability and, and the 90-minute thing, and then the referee, uh, the official, them being two uh, levels beneath that. I mean, what, what I would say, David, I mean, we can always complain about referees. No referee will never get a perfect. And the analogy you've used, I, I totally get. But I'm sure a judge has got longer than one second to make his decision. That's the problem with football. A referee, mm -hmm. something happens, he blows his whistle, he's got to make his... Uh, and a lot they're only human. Sometimes they freeze, sometimes they... They bottle it, they, they see it from a different act, whatever it may be. And it's not me just defending referees because we all get frustrated about them. But uh, the consistency you're speaking about, I think it, it's very difficult to, 
ever get what we all want because all the referees are different. That's the consistent part of it. They've all got their own inconsistencies and they all see things differently. It's like when you go back to the pub, no one can yeah. we'll speak yeah. about instance and all have a consistent view of it. We'll all have, you know, we'll all say different things about how we saw it. I mean, the one worry for me is and I don't know any of your takes on VAR, whether you're for it or against it, but for me, referees do need help because you know the game's a hundred mile an hour and the stakes are so high money-wise as you're talking. And Howard Webb's coming in and he's almost going the other way where he's saying, I believe that he wants as little interference from VAR as possible, which again, that might be a lot of people's views. But what I wouldn't want to do is if you've actually got the system yeah. to not actually use it to get to the right decision. The, yeah. the big thing for me is the time. And the thing in the World Cup that I liked was the offside thing. There was no waiting rounds. It was just done in a second. Uh, the offside situation. So for me, the biggest frustration is time. And it's interesting for me when I'm commentating and the v we, we can hear the VAR, what they're saying to the referee. And this thing of a referee going to the monitor, everyone seems to like it. I don't like it. Because every time he goes to the monitor, we all know he's going to change his decision. And But what happens is he's not going to the monitor to have a look at it again. When he's on his way over, the VAR are telling him why he should change his decision. So he's... He, He's going over there saying, we've seen this, we've seen this, you have a look at it. That's why they never change the decision, because VAR are telling them, we're on the way over, what they haven't seen or what they've seen. Now, I'm a bit like, what's the point of this? Yeah. This, that's, again, that's, for me, was yeah, a minute or two minutes. Because think about it. I know people say, oh, VAR aren't in the stadium or whatever, but a referee, if a, if a linesman flags for something, whether it's an offside or he's seen an off-the-ball incident, the referee will blow his whistle because the referee and the referees are the part of a team. So VAR, for me, are part of this team as well. Officials to get the right decision. So when the VAR tells you something needs to change, why does the referee go and have to have a look at it? If the linesman flags for something, he doesn't go and have a look at it. So if VAR are part of the team, you, you, go, you go with that. For me... You don't have to go and look because, again, we're then wasting one or two minutes with the referee looking at something, and he always goes with what they've said anyway. I've yeah. never, it must happen once a season out of a thousand where a referee sticks with his own decision. So, for me, the big thing about VAR is it's the time and the waiting round. If we can get offside done, like we saw in the World Cup, referee blows, now it's offside. VAR have said, no, it's because of this. Now, you obviously have a high bar. You don't want them getting involved all the time. But for me, the big thing is I'm not. I haven't got a problem with someone helping the referee. It's the time that I don't like that everyone's sort of waiting around, not knowing what's going on. If we can get that short and sharp, I think that'll be a major help to the game. I think you're dealing with humans. So what you want is a robot. I think that's your problem. I think that's you know, what Dave wants to be for. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. I do need to add context to that. That isn't true. What I said was, these are athletes. The whole process is built towards excellence. And this, I tried to give you the examples of now they've got people who check out far throw-ins go and people who, who, 
who analyze how many times it goes across the back. They have got excellence in every area. So definitely VAR. But I'm saying this game is a wash with money. Yet no one's ever sat down. We they will always be dealing with individuals, but so are footballers, individuals too. You'd have a rule at work, you'd have a standard of what is good enough and what isn't. And if referees have a bad game, like footballers have a bad game, they look to step it up. What you find then, like the league over a 10-year period, the gradient will go up. The standard, there'll be games when it doesn't, but the general gradient will go up. Well, that's, that's, I've sat with Keith Mullen for years and years, and I'm honestly saying to you now, everything else about the British, the English game has gone on an upward trajectory. The stands, the experience, everything about it has gone on an upward trajectory, except that and, and some sort of building process, some sort of um, St. George's Park initiative for referees with all this money around, even if it never worked, it would be worth 15 years of looking at it because all we are here, we're paying everybody big dough and have, we don't know what's happening, like you just said with the VAR. It took years to decide whether they brought it in and then took two years to decide how to use it. Did it mm. one way this way, that way this way? It's like, that's really not competency. That's not excellence. That's the opposite, the antithesis of excellence. So if you're looking to improve the game going forward, new eyes on it, new investors, that's the area you could easily make an impact on within the first 20 years. The rest of it is just small margins, just shaving because everything else, everybody's already onto all the other aspects of it. Yeah. This, with, I don't know, 200 million but, towards it in 15 years, you could probably do something. We've had law in this country for God knows how long, and it's still shit. And if you're <laughs> talking about consistencies, have a look at the law, because that's probably the worst analogy anybody can make the law, because it's Fucking useless. And to be, you, you, you've got to look at football and you go, right, okay, for referee. I think the referees worry about who's actually running the game. Is it VAR or is it them? And I think that's where they got a problem. If they said, right, okay, well, you know, they get together as a team, like you said, I think that'd be all right. But I think it comes down to who's refereeing the game. Mm -hmm. Is referee in the game or is the referee refereeing the game? Because the referee is going to take all I refereed a few games, so I mean, I'm I gonna say Gerard, Gerard used to referee the Derby, so they were two a season, yeah. I think with the ref and thing, I mean, with VAR, we've tried to make it all scientific. I mean, that's kind of what it's, it's become about. It's like, it's like what Dave's saying, we're, we're supposed to be playing at such a high level, it's the best league in the world. And when people were screaming for years, we need we've got the technology now, why don't we use the kind of technology for offside or? Or for you know for, for going over the goal line, which we, we the goal which we kind of got now, and I, I think what we've done is we I think the league what they've done is tried to make it all scientific, which we which we we've done, and then kind of realised the people that are still operating them machines are humans. At the yeah. end, and I just I just think it's going to take time to work out the rules. Who's who is actually in charge? You asked the last word, which is sounds to me like it's the ref. I didn't I wasn't aware that what you were saying there, Jamie that. You know, they're saying into his ear as he's going over to the screen, here's why you need to change your mind, you know. Obviously, the referee's still got to obviously look at it, but they're already planting a seed in his head yeah. why it should be changed. Now, listen, you could argue, well, that's actually good communication. They're trying to save time before he gets there or something. But this idea that the referee 
at home, we think, oh, the referee's just being told to go and have a look. He's not being going told to have a look at the situation again. He's being told to have a look, and they're already feeding them why they think it should be changed. So that's why I always feel the pressure on the referee when it goes to the screen. He's got two officials in Stockley Park telling him he's made a mistake. For him to then look at it and go, no, you was wrong to his mates, and then go and stick with his... It's not going to happen. That's why I just think... I, I think it's a waste of time actually looking at the monitor, to be fair. But again, yeah. we thought it stop opinions on... Uh, do, what do you think? Know. Do you think they're looking at the monitor then for aesthetic purposes for the crowd? It's like, oh, but let's go and have a look at the monitor so it looks yeah. like he's still in charge. In the, in the first year when it came on, everyone seemed to be obsessed with the referee <clears> should make the final decision. And I was never for it because I always thought the pressure on the referee, he's got two benches at the side of him. He's got the crowd there screaming at him. This fella's going to look at this screen again. He already thinks he's made a mistake when he's gone over. How is he feeling? I just don't know how he's going to actually just watch this thing and, you know, get to sort of the outcome that he thought it was originally. So I, I think it serves its purpose, really. But Yeah, I, I just think football's weird because everyone says it's the best league in the world. Yeah, people are doing less. And I always thought you had to do, to improve, you had to do more. Hmm. Yeah, everybody does less than they've ever done. So how do they get better? Yeah. Just Jamie, Jamie, can I just get a quick question to you? You know, you were talking yeah. about some of the greats earlier, the, the modern era, Mbappe, Ronaldo. But obviously, you know, we, you know, we, we have the sad news of, you know, Pele's passing. Uh, you know, one of the, probably one of the, you know, the first global superstar, if you will. Of the game, I mean, kind of. What 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 are your thoughts on Pele? Kind of what what did you hear about him growing up? Well, gr well growing up, to be honest, there's two things that stand out. When I was uh, when I was a young kid, I think it was about ten or twelve at Christmas, and I, I got the video Brazil seventy. Uh, I think was that the first colour. Yeah, World it, was, it, was, it, was, yeah it was. Yeah, yeah, and I just remember watching that. And, and, and it's funny, the things that stood out were his goals. I always remember the two things that happened was he had a shot from the halfway line that actually missed. Yeah. And yeah. the one where he done is the goal, he runs around the goalie. And yeah. I know this sounds really strange, but it almost felt better because he'd missed in some way. It was almost like, oh, you, you know, the cheek also, of it. Also, that ball with that the, the famous goal, the last one for the former, the well, ball, that, that, he comes on the outside yeah. and, and Pelly uh, just rolls the ball inside foot to two. Jeez. I think that probably along with side Maradona's one against England, probably, they're probably the two most famous goals of all time where yeah. Carlos Alberto wins the, Carlos Alberto was he wins the World Cup and obviously Pelly plays that pass. And yeah, he was the first, I, I remember Maradona as a kid, but Pelle was the guy that sort of everyone had just Christian, he's the best player in the world. No one had to be better than him. And the other thing was I'm playing at Goodison. And you know, speaking that I think that was really proud moment years later, not just at the time that Pele had played at Goodison in, in the in the World Cup. And that was the only one I think he he didn't win that he played yeah, he and he got kicked off the park. Yeah. And uh, but it was the fact that Pele played it at Goodison. That was like a really thing for you know as an Everton fan as a kid and I remember my dad saying this this thing Pelly's played at our stadium you know so I think it was really uh, sort of mapped at the time so certainly for Evertonians the one time he was in the country he played at Goodison Park but listen it, I mean we, we had it not so long ago 
with Maradona. I think obviously Johan Cruyff and I think before this generation of player, they what I grew up with being told was it was it was Pele, Maradona, Cruyff. They were almost like the three players that everyone always said they're the three best players. Yeah. Certainly when I was a kid uh, growing up. So yeah, it's uh, it's sad. I mean, I think we've known it was it was coming maybe in the last. Uh, couple of weeks and I yeah I actually I, I actually messed him actually just come to me now I forgot in the World Cup in in Brazil so I, I was still playing for was that Brazil 2000 no 2014 was Brazil and uh, I took my son to the final as like a Christmas present so the final was Argentina Germany and uh, he was opening a subway uh, a sandwich shop and Jeff Reeves <laughs> Jeff Reeves from Sky was interviewing him so I'm with Jeff in the car. I'm like, I'm waiting around, I'm waiting around. Because it was the day of the final. And we were sort of waiting and waiting, thinking we're going to get to the final. But you couldn't leave to go and watch the World Cup final until you'd met Helen, you know. So <laughs> I got a picture with me and my son. And uh, Jeff's photo bonded. But so we always think <laughs> Jeff out. But, but no, he was in a... He said a couple of nice things to me as a player. And I, you know, being a scout and being switched on, I knew he didn't have a clue. <laughs> At the time, I was, uh, but I certainly had to do who he was. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Well, listen, Jamie, thank you so much for joining us again today. It's been absolutely brilliant having you back. Um, Nev, do you have any final questions for Jamie? Can I, can I ask Nev a question? Yeah, go on. Nev, what was your best game? I've, I've got one in my head. What, what was your best game for Everton? For Everton? Um... I think it's difficult, really, uh, to pin that one down. I always played well at Southampton, so pick any Southampton games because we didn't. We always got hammered at Southampton for some reason. So Southampton, main main at Southampton. I suppose Sheffield Wednesday was half decent. I, I don't really bother with that sort of stuff, Jamie. If I'm honest, uh, I always I, I'll tell you the reason I asked you. And I remember the the, the the games that you mentioned, especially in '84, '85. You know the save at, at Sheffield Wednesday, the save at uh, at Tottenham mm-hmm. as well, but. I remember a game at Ifield Road, Coventry, hmm. where you saved a penalty from Kill Klein. I think you saved a free kick. I think it was Greg Downs was the left back. Wow. And, uh, I actually went, that was the second game of the season now. So the first, it was Cossie's first season. Yeah. He got a, yeah, he got a hat trick against Newcastle. He did. 4 uh, yeah. 0. And then the, the following week was away at Highfield Road. And uh, I always remember the game because we were outside with my dad, me and my brother, and we were leaning against the door. And this fella's opened the door, a Coventry official, and we fell in. And my dad made that bigger song of dancing of us being hit and injured. He just let us in for nothing. So we were actually <laughs> in, the, in the Coventry. We weren't behind the goal. But that, and Cotty scored the first half. But I remember that penalty from Kill Klein and your performance that day. That was, uh, that, well, that was the number one for me, Nev. Just thought I'd mention that. Because you got in for Because <laughs> we got in for nothing as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The best ever, the best ever game I played was Holland when we got beat seven one. Well, I actually saw that. I saw the someone text me about a month ago. Maybe it was a bit longer. Was it S four C or something that was in a a documentary? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I watched it, and the they did the the game again and the saves that you made, and and it showed you being a kid. And the fellas in the pub was it? Was the fella an Everton fan who owned the local pub or something? Yeah. And he spoke to Howard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I watched it. Yeah, it was brilliant. Howard was scouted in the pub. 
That's where you find the best players. <laughs> but yeah, he's um, he's a good fella. To be fair, he was uh It was called the Neville, but it was spelled differently. And he actually introduced me to Howard. Um, who just taken over, I think, in Blackburn at the time. Yeah. So he, then he came to watch me. Obviously, Winsford. Then he kept an eye on me when I was at Berry, and then obviously we signed him. Then I disappointed him by saying I didn't drink. So, you know. <laughs> well, never. I just want to say, and I'm up blowing smoke up your ass. Uh, obviously, I've been a player. I'm now watching a lot of great goals. I've never seen a goalkeeper as good as you in my life, and that is not me speaking as a young Evertonian. That is a me speaking as, as a football fan. I'm watching Smeichel, watching Alisson, Edison now. Anyone ever asked me, you're still the best goalkeeper I've ever seen. You're you're my pundit. (laughs) What's that? You're my best pundit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, don't tell Gary Neville when we want him to come on for the mental health thing. I appreciate that, Jamie, a lot, mate. means a lot coming from you. Yeah, no problem. (laughs) A big thank you to everyone who's joined us today. Thank you again to Bootle's finest, Jamie Carragher. Thank you to Keith Mullen. Thank you to David Feely. And thank you to Neville Southall, who's brought us all together. I'm James Rogers. This is 90 Minutes with Neville Southall. Thank you so much for listening to us today. We look forward to seeing you again.